Hello, thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today we're going to be discussing the Word of God. And I don't mean that just a, you know, broad sweeping generalization about, you know, we're talking about something from the Word of God. We are actually going to just be talking about the Word of God and some basic things about the Word of God. Sometimes teachers and preachers can take for granted that the people that listening that are listening to them, um, they automatically assume that they know certain things about the Word of God. And so it's been on my mind to maybe do some lessons that are just dealing with basic topics that some people who are maybe new or who weren't raised in Christian circles, uh, they just might not know. And, of course, it's always good to be reminded of some of these basic things, um, lest at any time we should let them slip. So first, what we're talking about in the Word of God is the question, what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is a collection of authoritative writings given by God to reveal Himself and His ways to mankind. And I said a collection of authoritative writings. It is not an authoritative collection, as though the fact that these books were collected makes them authoritative. But it is a collection of books or writings that were recognized as being authoritative. And the difference is when you consider a lot of non-Christians believe that the Catholic Church is the one who picked the books. And that's just false. You can read in the writings of the Anti-Nicene Fathers um, that they knew which books were from God and which weren't. And the Jews had certain standards that they used to pick the Old Testament canon, and it's basically the same standards that the New Testament Christians used because the overwhelming majority of the New Testament Christians were Jewish for a, for a while. And so it's not the fact that these books were collected that makes them authoritative. It's the fact that they were authoritative that they were collected. Now, the common name for the Bible comes from the word for book in uh, Latin, and it's just similar in uh, Greek. Um, but over time, the early believers began to refer to the collection of sacred books as the book. And this inevitably came over into the Latin, and since then we have referred to it as the Bible. Other terms used are the scriptures in Matthew 21, 42, Mark 14, 49, and a whole host of others. Uh, the books, Daniel 9, 2. Holy scriptures, Romans 1, 2. Sacred writings, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 15. So the next question is, how is it arranged? How are the books in the Bible arranged? And it's not chronological. It's not in order. Even though Genesis is the first book, it was not the first one written. And so people can, whenever the first time you pick up a Bible and you're trying to start reading it, you kind of might get a little confused. You get all the way up through Second Kings, and then you go to First Chronicles, and it goes back. You're wondering why, you know, what's going on with Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Well, there's a time jump there that if you, you don't pick it up, you're kind of confused. People... You know, whenever you go to a church, you hear stories and stuff, like my own children, whenever we're reading through, they're like, oh, was this after Jesus or before Jesus? Because they don't have a grasp of the whole yet. And so the Bible is divided into two, what we call testaments. 
which refer to the two covenants given by God, where testament and covenants are interchangeable in what they mean. The Old Testament refers to the time period under the Old Covenant, which we call the Law of Moses. That's recorded in um, Exodus. With the exception of the time period from creation to when the law was given at Mount Sinai, uh, or Genesis 1-1 through Exodus 20. And so that time period from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to Exodus chapter 20, when the law was officially given at Mount Sinai, um, was not under the law. Now, in referring to the Old Testament, a lot of times we kind of just, uh, like Christ and them in the Gospels, refer to the law and the prophets. They kind of just lump it all together because Moses did write down Genesis. Now, the New Testament refers to the writings that were given after the Messiah came, Jesus Christ, Christ being the Greek form of the word for Messiah, which both words just mean the anointed one, the one chosen by God. Until So from the time period after the Messiah came until the close of the canon of Scripture, the body of Scripture that was given by God. Um, So that's from the books of Matthew to Revelation. And if you open almost every Bible, uh, depending, no matter who it's printed by, you'll find a table of contents page usually with the layout of these books in their chronological order. And so if you want to open that and just kind of follow along as I read through the kind of breakdown of how these are arranged, it might help you. I remember whenever I was a new Christian, I actually wrote down on the table of contents page, and it just helped me to remember. Um, but the the Old Testament uh, has 39 books in the English translation. In the Hebrew, it has less because they lump certain ones together. But same contents, they just call like the, the 12 minor prophets, they call them the 12. Um, and I believe in First and Second Samuel, First and 2 Kings, and a couple of those are combined together to make one book, you know. But same writings are put together. It's just in English, our English Bibles, um, there's 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New, making 66 total. And so these books are not arranged in the English Bible chronologically, but are grouped together more topically. So if you're looking at the table of contents page on your Bible, you'll see the first, uh, probably top left column, you'll see it says Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these generally are referred to as the law or the five books of Moses. And these were written down by Moses. Um, There was some editing that was done later, especially when you consider the last couple chap- last bit of Deuteronomy because it records Moses' death, um, most likely by Joshua or someone else around that time period. And so those from Genesis down through Deuteronomy are considered the law because they contain the commandments and so forth of the covenant that was given at Mount Sinai, the old covenant. Now, if you keep reading down through that column, you'll see Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, two separate books in our English Bible, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and those again are two separate books in our English Bibles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now these are considered history. Now yeah, there's history in Genesis through Deuteronomy, 
But these ones are primarily history. They're not necessarily instructive in the sense of how the law. You read the Leviticus, it's all talking about how the Levites are to, you know, deal with things regarding the tabernacle and sacrifices and so forth. And there's a lot of commandments and so forth recorded in the end of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so, but these record from Joshua through Esther, pretty much the history of the Jewish people, um, the nation of Israel, once they entered into the land under Joshua, who took over after Moses. And then you have the time period of the judges, Ruth happening during that time period. And then from 1 Samuel all the way through Second Chronicles, you have an account of the history of kings over Israel and later Judah when there was a civil war, kind of, and they split. And then Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther happen after God punishes the Israelites and has Judah destroyed and the temples torn down and everything like that. And so Esther happens during that time period. Ezra and Nehemiah are hap happen after God starts to bring the people back, as he said he did all the way back in Deuteronomy, that he would bring them back after a certain period of time. And so next, if you keep reading, you see Job... Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, depending on how it's translated or titled. And these are considered poetical or wisdom books. And I do prefer wisdom. Poetry, at least in English, um, is not really considered too highly in a certain thing. But the form of how the Hebrew is written is written in a poetic style. Uh, Psalms is really... A, the hymn book. Um, they would sing these uh, proverbs, a collection of wise sayings and so forth, and there is certain prophetic aspects in, in the book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon being written by Solomon. And so the style of these is different in a sense, but the style in Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, uh, was poetic in these, which is why some English translations will actually have the style of the writing in them kind of offset a little bit, and they're trying to just let you know, hey, these are written in a poetic style. It does not mean that the things contained in them are not true, like the book of Job. It's just written in a poetic style, and Hebrew, lots of Hebraisms and things like that in it, and parallelism and things like that. Now, after these this section, the poetic or wisdom section, from Job through Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, you get to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And there were more prophets than this, but these are the ones that God chose to have write down certain things. And so, I mean, you read through, you see Gad and Nathan and other prophets, regarding, even in the time of David, who were men of God. They served the Lord. I mean, think of Elijah and Elisha. We don't have books from them. And so not every prophet was, it was not given to every prophet to write down and be considered scripture. And there's some people within certain groups of Christianity, you know, and I hesitate to say Christianity for some of them, uh, that because they are not cessationist in their views, and, and neither am I, um, they believe that the Holy Spirit moves today the same as he did back then, but they falsely believe that we have apostles in the same sense and that we have prophets in the same sense as the Old Testament. And some people wrongly assume that, well, because they're speaking by the Spirit of God, that it's therefore Scripture. No. Scripture, not even the prophets in the Old Testament, not all of them, wrote Scripture. 
It was very, very different than just being able to prophesy. So just because somebody speaks by the Holy Spirit, whether they claim to or actually do, does not mean that it's Scripture. It's very important for people to understand that. But we generally group the the Old Testament prophets into two groups, not because of importance or anything, but mainly because the scope of the things that they talked about and their subject matter that God gave them to deal with. Um, certain things carry over long-term more is just maybe the best way to, to word it. So we have the major prophets, which are the first group, and the minor prophets. Now, and these you have to take you have to think about a lot of most of these were prophesying and performing their ministry and service to the Lord during the time of the kings and in the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then several of them, um, bet- you know, Daniel, kind of between whenever they get taken away to Babylon, and then you have several of them whenever they come back into the land. So they're scattered throughout that whole time period. Now the first five are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah after God destroyed Jerusalem the first time. And so these are considered the major prophets. And then you have the 12 minor prophets, they're called again. Not less important at all, um, but the scope of their ministry was just more focused on a localized area usually does not mean that each of them did not have something for all to benefit from. And so the 12 minor prophets, which again in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, are grouped together in one volume. They are called Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets regarding Scripture at least, before there was this break and there was this division in time of about 400 years um, where God did not really openly give vision or prophecy and things like that until the time getting ready for the Messiah to come forth, Christ. And so the New Testament begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark was most likely the first written because both Matthew and Luke reference his gospel. And John Mark, uh, who wrote down the gospel according to Mark, as it's commonly called, is believed to have actually just wrote down Peter's, the Apostle Peter's testimony. Um, Early Christian history um, records that as how that happened. And Matthew and Luke, Luke writing down a pretty much a historical epitaph, really, and he also wrote down the book of Acts, which is why both of those start kind of more like a history. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they cover so much of the same territory and so much of the same stuff from the same view, they're called synoptic gospels, um, S-Y-N, optic, not S-I-N, where they have the same view. John's gospel was the last written, we believe, and it was written mainly dealing, and he was emphasizing certain things because Christianity was under attack at the time by Gnosticism, which is a false religious system that you know we know today as the New Age movement or Satanism and the occult. And so there was a lot of deception going on. Many people didn't understand what was biblical Christianity at the time, 
And so John emphasized certain things. We know this because he said so to Polycarp, his disciple, and Polycarp told Irenaeus, and we've got those writings. But sometimes people in the academic circles consider them as Greco-Roman bios, bios in the sense of biography. But Luke is sometimes considered to be a historical epitaph, you know, a historical book. And then again, the next in the New Testament is the book of Acts, or called the Acts of the Apostles. And this is the sole primary history book. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record a lot of the teachings of Christ, miracles, and things such as that. Acts is primarily dealing with the history of what happened after Christ resurrected and after he ascended into heaven. And the, really the formation and the beginning of the spread of the gospel throughout the world by the first, first generation Christians. And again, it was written down by Luke. And then next we have what are considered Paul's epistles or Paul's writings. Um, and they are named because of the person or group of Christians in a certain area uh, that he wrote to. So you have some of his writings were written to people, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and then you have some that are written to churches. You have Corinthians, Ephesians, which actually there's some disagreement about whether or not that Ephesians is actually written to Ephesians, um, but that's a whole academic discussion that really is irrelevant. Um, it was written to certain people. That's, we'll just settle on that. And the Philippians, Colossians, uh, Thessalonians. But uh, if you read Galatians and Romans, you see that he's writing to multiple groups of believers, multiple fellowships. Like uh, Romans, he says, to all the churches in Rome. And in Galatians, he says, to all those in the region of Galatia. And so these are letters where he's specifically instructing them, addressing questions, correcting them. And sometimes asking things of them, like in Philemon. And again, that's the Apostle Paul. And then you have what are considered the general epistles, or the general letters, and that's from some of the other apostles and people. You have Jude um, at the end there. But you have um, Hebrews, which there's disagreement about who wrote Hebrews. The early on believers did reference this as Scripture. There was really no disagreement about whether or not it was scripture ultimately, but as is some things, people disagree about who the author was. Some people say Paul the Apostle. Some people say Timothy. Um, and There's different um, different views. I do myself lean towards it being Apollos uh, because of the language being uh, it was a Jew. It was somebody who knew Greek culture and Greek arguments, especially things like Philo, um, and the language of it, it kind of deals more towards Alexandrian Greek. And so that fits Apollos very well. And so, but again, it doesn't matter. It could have been Paul. We don't know. And then there's James, first and second Peter, and first, second, and third John. That's the same John as the Gospel of John. And then the book of Jude. And then you have the last book in the New Testament and the canon of Scripture. It's called the Revelation. Early Christians refer to it as the Apocalypse, or the unveiling, the revealing, really, of Christ. And it is it is solely, with the exception of the uh, first three chapters, it is solely prophetic in what it is intended to communicate. So that is the entirety of the canon of Scripture. Nothing else 
is considered scripture. It's very popular today because of Gnosticism to accept something like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel according to Peter, and none of these who are given these names were actually even written by those people. It was usually over 100 to 250 years after that so-called person's death, and the early Christians didn't accept them as anything authoritative either. And some of the anti-Nicene fathers also recognizing that um, some of these were written down in their day, you know, much, much after the time that they were actually supposedly written. And so none of these are considered Scripture, and it's not because people didn't like what was in them. It's because they just were made up. And so what you have in the Scriptures is what is supposed to be there. So next, why did God choose to use text? Why did God choose to write down things? And you can think about this from a modern person's viewpoint. You know, we to a certain point, we desire experience. And desiring experience in and of itself is not necessarily wrong um, to a certain point. But there is a certain kind of desiring experience which undermines the Bible. And we'll talk about that maybe in a few minutes. But why did God choose to use text when he could have done any number of things? Could have just given individual visions to people. He could have you know, had angels, as the example goes, angels write it in the sky. You know, what's the, why did he choose to use text? And I believe there's a very simple answer for that, because it's objective. God entered into history and did an event. Uh, primarily, when I say that I'm thinking about Christ coming into the world and dying on a cross, raising from the dead and ascending into heaven. Now, he's done all sorts of things throughout history, but the soul crux of the gospel is what Christ did, an event in human history. There were witnesses. There's proof. There is rational arguments. We have evidence. The text of Scripture, we can trace it back to whenever it was given. We can see how it was maintained through history. You can trace its transmission and its preservation all the way back to the beginning. And You can't do that if things are just experience, if it's subjective feelings or visions. It would always be, well, I had an experience. Can you prove it? Well, no. And so one of the primary things is because it's objective. If God chose to only reveal himself to mankind by subjective experiences, then there would be nothing that is provable or verifiable. Because we have God's Word in written form, we can verify its transmission, its age, its preservation, the historical events described in it, etc. And this is one thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world when it comes to apologetics or defending Christianity. We can objectively prove things. Now, the Spirit of God does indeed give subjective experiences and leading in the time and manner that he sees fit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 11, we read, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy 
and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. And so manifestations of the Spirit of God in the body, or to individuals within the body, are always for the benefit of the body of Christ, and it's always according as He sees fit. And so you need to be careful to not put the cart before the horse, and especially when you're dealing with struggles in life, and you're drawing closer to the Lord, and trying to draw closer to the Lord. It's very easy to start desiring the experience in a way that is not good, because you're exalting it above what God has already given. So the next question is, what is inspiration? Now, when believers refer to the inspired Word of God, they are referring to the fact that the Holy Spirit is the author of the Scriptures. Everything that the Spirit of God does agrees with the written Word of God. And you need to grasp that. Everything that the Spirit of God does, whether in manifestation or in His character, agrees with the written Word of God. You know, the Lord says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. And so if he has given us the words of God, the what we call the scriptures, of course it is going to be consistent with how he operates. And this is because it is the Holy Spirit that moved men to write the scriptures, as if the Holy Spirit was the hand of the author and the men were the pen God used to write his words. Was it done through an instrument? Yes, like men. Men wrote these things down, and God even used their personalities to do so. But the Holy Spirit was moving them to do as he wanted to do. We read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Notice that he says no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. That's not how prophecy works. You don't just be like, well, I'm going to say this or that, and God's going to verify it. No. No, no, that's not prophecy. It says that men were moved by the Spirit of God to speak and write what they did. And we know in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate or perfect and complete, equipped for every good work. So you have everything you need in the written Word of God for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So you have everything that you need to be equipped for every good work. Now, the Greek word translated as inspired or inspiration is theonoustos. It's a compound word meaning God-breathed. So when you say that the Word of God is inspired, you're essentially saying that you believe it was breathed out by God himself. Its author is God himself. And again, yes, men were used to write it down. There's not a contradiction in saying that, okay? 
So what's the other part of this? Is preservation. So what is preservation? Well, preservation, in the sense of it being preserved, right? Preservation is the belief that God has preserved his word for us today and that it has not been lost. Um, God promised that he would keep his word, that it would not be lost. In Matthew 24, 35, we read, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For, and he quotes from Isaiah, all, flat, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So God has promised to preserve his word. And you pay attention in Matthew 24, 35, he says, My words, the very words that he spoke, are preserved for us. So nobody can say that God has lost his word unless they're calling God a liar. So what about translations? Right? This is a natural question that follows. What about translations? There's so many translations today, and there are indeed too many translations. And to a certain point, there's just, you're saturating with all these translations, and it does confuse people. So God originally recorded his words in Hebrew, Greek, and a small portion in Aramaic, the book of Daniel and the book of Esther. And these are the languages that those promises of God to preserve his words were given in. And so my background back when I was a new Christian was in what's called the King James Only Movement, where I was taught that there was only one legitimate English translation and every other one is a perversion and you're an agent of Satan if you're doing it because you're changing God's word. Well, no, actually the evidence goes to the opposite of that. Not that the King James is, is a perversion in that sense, like how they say, but the promises that God recorded his words were given in. They were in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. So when God says, I will preserve my words, he said that in Hebrew. When he said that he would preserve his words, it was in Greek in the New Testament. And we have those. We have manuscripts, thousands of them. We have them in other languages that were translated from the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, and we, it's just objectively true that we have the original text of the Scriptures. Now, there's variants. There's things that happen in the transmission. But here's the thing. Nothing was lost. The study of textual criticism is eliminating those things that were added on. It's not eliminating the original, and it's not searching for the original. The original is there. It's just you're separating out the things that were not there originally. And I should, maybe one day I'll do a whole lesson on this, but for the topic today, all that you need to know is when you know the data, there's nothing scary about this. We have God's Word, and the more that I've studied, the more that I've examined things, 
the more confident I have been that we have God's Word. Sometimes people keep themselves ignorant of things like textual criticism because they're afraid they're going to find something that's going to dismiss or undermine faith. I have found the exact opposite because, yes, you deal with arguments, you deal with things of people trying to dismiss the Word of God, but when you keep studying, you find that almost every argument, and I will say every argument, really, is completely false or a misrepresentation of things. So people don't do enough studying, really. But so God has preserved the original text for us. And these are the words that he has preserved for us. Everything else is a translation. Every other language, Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, and those portions, every single other language is a translation. Whether it's the English versions today or the old pre-Catholic Latin, everything else is a translation. And so grammar and translation things that we know come into play. There's different philosophies of translation. There's different goals of translation. Translations of God's Word are still inspired as long as they're translated accurately. Um, there are groups or cults that have intentionally altered the Word of God to protect their doctrinal perversions. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses or the Watchtower Society, a cult. They are not Christians. They had to create their own Bible translation, and it's not a translation. It is a complete perversion of the Scriptures. It is not justified by any text of the original um, text of Scripture. They had to change it in order to put their doctrine there. Um, the Mormons, Joseph Smith and their false prophet, he did his own translation of the Bible, and it's just to be plain, it's absolute garbage. He was intentionally putting his own beliefs into the text. And even Mormons today don't use it, really. It's in their quads, but it's not, you know, it's not their main one. They mainly use a King James. And so there are also so-called Bibles that are not actually translations, such as the message. And that may upset some people. I don't care. It's not something you should be using, or the living Bible. And some people might take issue with that one. I don't. It's You should not be using these. They're not really translations. They are paraphrases. They are one man's opinion about what the Bible means. And so if somebody is using something like the Message or the Living Bible, they should stop using it. And that's a strong stance as opposed to some people but we'll just give an example. Um, and here, look at a verse from Matthew 6. Um, in the New American Standard Bible, we read Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a, that's a good faithful translation to what is in the Greek, according to the philosophy, translation philosophy of the New American Standard Bible, right? And so here is that same verse as it's rendered in the message. It says, Do what's best, as above, so below. Now, that is not a legitimate translation of the original text. That is not even what's, what's communicated by the Greek. And in addition to that, there is a statement there, as above, so below, which is a maxim from the occult, witchcraft, Satanism, you know, a neo-gnosticism. 
That is a, this literally has nothing to do with Christianity. Eugene Peterson, the author of the message, also supports homosexuality, which is directly contrary to Scripture. This man is not right with God. And so why should we be using the message? You have false teachers like Rick Warren who use the message. Why? Because you can make it say whatever you want, but it's not the Word of God. Another example, in Psalms 25, 8-10, in the New American Standard Bible, a good faithful translation. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. Now compare this with the message where the message Eugene Peterson says, God is fair and just. He corrects the misdirected, sends them in the right direction. He gives the rejects His hand and leads them step by step. From now on, every road you travel will take you to God. Follow the covenant signs Read the charted directions. Now, this simply changes the meaning of the passage. The message changes sinners to the misdirected. Well, sinners are not misdirected, necessarily. When you say misdirected, that's, assume, that's like giving the implication that somebody directed them wrongly. Sinners are accountable for themselves. It completely changes the last part of this passage. It is not true that every road you travel will take you to God. That's not what the original text says, and it completely contradicts the rest of the Bible. That teaches universalism. The text says that the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. It shows condition, and it shows, no, the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and testimony, to those who obey him. The message changes this to universalism. The idea that everything leads to God, right? The message fails because it is not a true translation of the original text. In the same way, neither is the New World translation of the Watchtower Society, nor the Joseph Smith translation of the Mormons are legitimate translations because they do not come from the text itself. People are forcing their own views upon it, and it's objectively verifiable that that's what they've done. Now, however... Translations such as the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, um, even the Christian Standard Bible, or the English Standard Version are good translations. Um, Even the NIV or the NET are good translations, though they use a different translation philosophy, and that's important to understand. Um, They are what's called a mediating translation or a functional equivalent translation. Uh, it used to be called dynamic um, equivalency. And it's mainly for those who maybe have English as a second language. And that's just the simplest way to put it. The new English translation is kind of more of an academic translation, but still good. Uh, but they're not ones that I encourage people to use. There's some choices that they make that I just I can't really get behind, but they're not something like a, something that I could not call God's Word. Um, the best choice for your own personal use would be to choose one of the formal equivalency ones. Um, a King James Version, New King James Version, a New American Standard Bible, English Standard Version, Christian Standard Bible. 
um, for your reading and study. And you can compare it with other versions like the NIV or the NET to get a different take on a passage you're studying. Um, and so don't allow this to bog you down. It really, there is some textual issues between Byzantine and the critical text, but we're talking at this point in history, minor differences, and that's going to upset some people. And they're going to say that you're minimizing the Word of God. No, I'm not. I've studied it more than really anybody I've known in my circles. I'm not saying I'm a scholar or anything, but coming out of a certain group where I obsessed over it, the changes are minimal. Do they matter at a certain point? Yes, they do. But they're all the Word of God, translated and brought over into English using different translation philosophies, and also sometimes having a different audience intended. An NIV was not originally meant for people who are scholars and things like that. It's, it's a certain choice about how to translate and a certain choice. And really, there's a reason it's called the New International Version. It's good for people who have English as a second language. But don't use it as a primary one to study from. Um, and there are some other ones that I just can't endorse, like a New Living Translation. I can't endorse it. It's not one that you should study from, and that's just the plain way of saying it. Is it something like from a perversions of like a Joseph Smith? No, it's not, but it's not one to study from. It's not one to read from. I know people that use it. It bothers me. You need to learn to go by the text and a formal equivalency for study especially. Otherwise, you're getting too much of somebody's opinion mixed in. I'm not saying burn it, but, you know. So, in closing, before we get into some practical things, the King James translators themselves, the ones who translated the King James Bible, and their translators to the reader that's in the preface of uh, most King James Bibles, depending on who the publisher is, they said very well in the beginning, they said, quote, We do not deny, nay, we affirm and avow, that the very meanest translation of the Bible in English set forth by men of our profession containeth the word of God, nay, is the word of God, as the king's speech which he uttered in Parliament, being translated into French, Dutch, Italian, and Latin, is still the king's speech, though it be not interpreted by every translator with the like grace. And so, just as they said, that's a good point to bring up. As long as God's intended meaning for the text is kept in the translation, it is just as much God's word as the original manuscripts or text in the original languages itself. And really, that's what we mean by preserved, ultimately. So, what does all of this mean for us practically as believers? Well, God's word is our objective authority. Believers are commanded to hear the words of God and obey them. Uh, we don't put feelings first. We don't put spirit first in the sense of spiritual utterance or spiritual um, manifestation. It goes back to the written word of God first. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, um, Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. 
And so he says to long for the, he likens the word of God to milk and given to a new baby so that they grow, right? And just like that, we need to continue in the written word of God to grow in respect to salvation. Uh, Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you want to overcome sin, you want to be mindful of what God has said is sin, you need to get the scriptures in your mind. You need to spend time reading it, remember it, think about it throughout the day, memorize passages that deal with things you may be dealing with. Um, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, that's pretty straightforward. If you continue in Christ's word, then that shows that you are truly his disciple. And so how do you change the flavor of a steak or chicken? You marinate it or season it. And you need to think of your brain like meat and how you think like the flavor of it. Marinate your brain in the word of God. And you're going to change the savor or the flavor, as it were, of your thoughts. Uh, next, practically, what, what can we draw from this? We're commanded to test everything by his word. And some people kick back about this because they've already compromised this, really. It's common to hear people emphasizing how believers should follow the leading of the Spirit. That's absolutely right. But how do you know what the Holy Spirit's leading? That's one of the reasons that God has given us his word. Or how do you know it's the Holy Spirit? People say, well, I know. Well, how do you know? Prove it. It is our object. The word of God is our objective standard. It's one of the reasons God gave us his word. It's the objective standard by which we can discern the subjective leadings that are from the Holy Spirit. Because we're commanded to test spirits and how they attempt to lead us. And John said in 1 John 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And all the way back in the Law of Moses, in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 4, the Lord said, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign of the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. So even if somebody comes to you and they're a prophet, or they say they're a prophet, and they even do a miracle, and what they say comes to pass, if what they are telling you to do contradicts God's word, you're not supposed to listen to them. Miracles don't validate prophets. Not by themselves. Miracles don't validate a messenger as being from God. Dreams don't validate as though somebody's from God. If what they are doing or saying or teaching contradicts what God has said, and you can extend that to whether or not they themselves are obeying what God has said, the fruits of their life. And even in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, 29, and 
Paul is discussing uh, how spiritual manifestations and gifts of the Holy Spirit are to operate within a body of believers. And he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. And he goes on to say one at a time, not all at once. And so it says here, you are supposed to judge them in the sense of discerning whether or not what they are saying is correct. You don't just blindly listen to people. So some people say that if you go by the written word of God, that you're not, you know, quote unquote, spiritual, or that you are putting God in a box. No, we're just doing what God said. God does not contradict himself. The Spirit of God is the author of Scripture, and the Spirit will not contradict himself. Um, Consider what Christ said in John chapter 6, verse 63. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The words of God are spiritual. They come from the Spirit of God. It is absolutely spiritual to be living and abiding in the written word of God. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3 through 5, we also read, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain." And I've talked about that passage in passing it another time, so I won't go into it again here. But if somebody does not agree with the sound words of the doctrines given by Christ and the apostles, they don't belong to him. They really don't. And then the marching orders for Christians, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, where Christ said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, And the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so what did Christ tell the disciples to do? To go and make disciples, to teach them his things. What things he taught them, they were to teach others. There is continuation in doctrine. So think about it like this. People go to doctors because they specialize in medicine. So the physically sick come to them for healing. Christians are supposed to be specialists in the words and teachings of Jesus Christ. The spiritually sick should be able to come to us for us to point them to the true healer for spiritual healing. Okay, here's a practical question. What if someone says that the Spirit led them a certain way? Well, as long as it doesn't contradict the Word of God, there's nothing wrong with that. However, if someone comes and tells you to to leave your spouse because God said that you're married to the wrong person, they're lying. And they might not know that, but they are lying. Your spouse is your spouse. You're married. That's not how that works. What about if someone tells you that Christians worship the same God as Muslims? That's objectively false. Consider this passage, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Allah, the God of Islam, says that he has no son, neither does he beget. The God of the Bible went out of his way to say that he begot a son in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. According to God's word, Islam is an antichrist religion. Why then do well-known teachers like Rick Warren say that we worship the same God? It's because they follow a different spirit than the Holy Spirit. That's at least according to the Apostle John. And so if someone says the Spirit led them a certain way, you need to prayerfully consider whether or not what it is being said or done contradicts the Word of God. And if it does not contradict what God has commanded believers, if it does not contradict the plain teaching of the Scriptures, then there is nothing necessarily wrong with that. But you do need to be watchful because these things by their very nature sometimes, when it is a different spirit, they are by very nature deceptive. They will masquerade as the truth. So in summary, we have God's Word. It is preserved from the originally inspired manuscripts, and we have many faithful translations to compare and study so that the average believer can know for certain what God requires of them and how to have a relationship with Him. The Word of God, the Bible, is our objective standard for what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. The Spirit of God does lead in subjective, experiential ways at times. Be faithful to know the Word of God and discern what comes from the Holy Spirit, because there are false spirits, demonic manifestations, and even your own flesh which can deceive you. And lastly, marinate your brain in the Word of God, and He will renew the spirit of your mind. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.